morning. Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Jacob, Jacob was the son who stayed near home for most of his life. Esau was out uh, doing different things, kind of living an openly rebellious life. Jacob was a bit more subtle and nuanced than that, a bit more sinister in his, and internal in his rebellious nature. Uh, but Jacob was more of a faithful home buddy, a staying close to Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, now Jacob... Uh, for the first time in his life, is on his own. And uh, Jacob, like his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, becomes a refugee. He's running from the wrath of his brother. His brother Esau wants to kill him. And actually, uh, he's, he doesn't know this yet, but he's, Jacob's running from a death threat from his brother Esau. He's, he's journeying uh, hundreds of miles to northern Mesopotamia, and he's running into the manipulative servitude of his uncle Laban, who's eventually actually going to become his father-in-law as well. So he's running away from a death threat. He's running into years of servitude. And so his spiritual mentoring was going to have to take place outside of the home, outside of the confines of his family of influence. That was gonna ha- he was going to have to, he's a man now, but he's going to have to grow up spiritually away from his parents and everything and everyone uh, that he always knew. And actually, the, the Genesis account, because this, this really, this not only addresses spiritual maturing in Jacob, it really addresses his conversion. This, this is Jacob's big conversion here in Genesis chapter 28. And as you read the Genesis accounts of Isaac and Rebekah, of of their sons, you really develop some insight for parenting. I don't often 
apply passages directly to parenting and spiritual mentoring, but the last three accounts in the saga of Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. I think there's a lot of insight for parenting and spiritual mentoring, and so that's how I'm going to apply today's text. Now, if you're a Christian, uh, like me, you probably have endeavored and worked very hard to, to pass on your worldview and your system of beliefs to your children. Uh, you, you pray unceasingly for your children, and, and you work and you endeavor very hard to pass on the nature of what you believe in, that system, that worldview, Christianity, the good news to your children. Uh, and, and actually, because you've prayed so hard and worked for so long to instill your worldview in your children, and maybe, maybe you're not a parent, but maybe you, you mentor people. Maybe you're a mentor, and so you work just as hard, and you pray, maybe you've prayed for people for years. Sometimes there's a fear. Sometimes there's a fear that they will reject the worldview and the belief system that you intend to pass on to them whether they're your children or whether they're somebody you've been mentoring or discipling and praying for, uh, there, there sometimes is a fear, is there not, that they will grow up or they will move on to reject the God that you worship, to reject the truth uh, that you've come uh, to hold dear to you. So that your greatest desire for them is very much connected to your greatest fear for them. And, and, and sometimes you're afraid because you know that God's amazing grace and salvation is outside of your control. Maybe you're not a Christian, and, and maybe, maybe you've worked very hard to ignore and to, and to step around and to, and to deflect and to deny or revolt against the hard efforts people in your life have made to help you understand what Christianity is all about and, 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 and try to persuade you to believe and follow the God of the Bible. And, and maybe, maybe you're uncomfortable or despise the fact that they have prayed for you for so long. And that, and that deep down, your, your, your biggest fear is that maybe they're right and God's going to catch you someday. But I would say the same thing to you. God's amazing grace is beyond your control to affect. For parents and for any type of spiritual mentor or coach, any type of disciple maker, faith, the kind of faith that the Bible talks about, faith trusts God, not you. Faith trusts in God to work in your children even when you can't. And today we're going to discuss a child's response to the grace of God and a parent's response to the grace of God. We're going to talk about how children respond to God's grace and we're going to talk about how parents should respond to the way God works in people, especially their children or especially the people you're mentoring and coaching. Now Jacob's story, I think, gives insight into how God works in children. Now, Jacob's an adult by this time, but I think the application still works if you're still raising your kids and, and trying to disciple them. Jacob's story gives us insight into a child's response to the grace and to the work of God. 
as Jacob's situation is only worsening, because think about it, he's, he's just left home, he made a mess of the household, got his brother so angry by his deception uh, that Esau now wants to kill him. And so at the advice of his mom, he's fleeing for his life and going away for years. So, so nothing's getting, things are only worsening for Jacob. He's traveling alone under duress. You know, the ancients, when they traveled and, and it got dark at night, they couldn't pull into a motel. They couldn't get on their phone and get onto their Airbnb app and find an apartment or, you know, just hang out at a Starbucks for a while and check their emails while they waited for the sun to come up. When you're traveling on an ancient road and the sun goes down, you're in trouble. And there's a reason to be concerned. And so now for the first time in his adult life, he's on his own. He's traveling. He's under duress. The sun goes down. And in the loneliness and in the darkness, the living God of the universe meets him. And we're told in Genesis chapter 28, verses 12 and 13, that while he was sleeping, he has a dream. That God appears to him in a dream and gives him a vision. And we're told the vision was this, that, that a ladder was set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And angels were ascending and descending on it. And we're told the Lord stood above the ladder. Think of it more like a stairway. Think of this as like a stairway to heaven. Now, if you're a baby boomer, don't misinterpret what I mean by stairway to heaven. Uh, He doesn't see this because of some kind of psychedelic hallucination. He's dreaming and the Lord gives him a vision. And what he sees is not so much a step ladder. He sees a stairway. Think of an ancient ziggurat. And those enormous structures and, and how they had staircases going up them in, in, ascending, in ascending levels. Uh, think of a stairway. Uh, and, and actually, that's how the, the NIV, the New International Version, puts it. It's a stairway. He sees a stairway in his dream. And what he sees on the stairway are, are angels. He sees angels going up and down on the stairway. And at the top of the stairway, he sees the living God, the God of his grandfather. And the God of his father. And actually, the significance scholars believe of this, of God is at the top of the stairway and angels are descending. They're going down and they're going up. Uh, Scholars say this signifies commerce, interaction, communication, cohesion between heaven and earth, between God and and humanity. Actually, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us that angels, although we cannot see them, uh, angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation. So on this lonely journey, in the dark, by himself, probably now guilty of everything that had transpired by his own doing. Jacob is gifted. He's given a wonderful gift. He's given a vision of the ultimate reality. He's alone in the dark on the run, but God reveals to him this, that God is present and active in human affairs. Even though you don't see it, God is present and active in human affairs and is actively involved in personal lives. God met Jacob where he was, as he was. It's really important. Jacob didn't have to clean up his act. Jacob wasn't even looking for God. God meets people as they are, where they are. Notice there's no rebuke. 
This is what you or I, and especially Jacob, could have expected if he sees God after the mess he just made. But there's no rebuke from God, despite his behavior. Rather, God reveals to Jacob an alternative life, a new life, a different life, a life he doesn't deserve. In verses 13 through 15, God says to him, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. God went on to say to him, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's exactly what God had said to his father, Isaac, and exactly what God had said to his grandfather, Abraham. Same language. Through you and through your family, I, am, I have a plan to bless all of humanity. And God went on to tell him, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God isn't stingy. He's gracious. And he commits, despite what Jacob has been doing, God commits himself to Jacob. Jacob wasn't looking for God, but what's different in Jacob's life? If you've been following with us and through, the, through the life of Jacob, what's different now is he's vulnerable. Jacob's not looking for God, but he's vulnerable. He's hard-pressed. He's being squeezed. And so when God appears to him, because of his circumstances, because of his vulnerability and weakness, Jacob is now in a position he is ready to listen. His eyes are wide open. And he perceives the reality that has been taking place around him, not only at that moment, but his entire life. And he says in verse 16, he declares, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Have you ever said that before? Man, God has been moving and present, and I have not comprehended it. I have been completely oblivious, but he's here, and he's working, and it's awesome. I've just had my eyes shut. And then he declares in verse 21, he says, the Lord will be my God. Right there, there's the conversion experience. So he has this stunning, this stunning dramatic encounter uh, and through this dramatic encounter, he makes some drastic, tangible changes in his life. You actually see, you see transformation in him. First thing he does is something just very obvious. He sets up a mo- memorial. He, he declares, this place is the place where God met me. And he makes a vow to follow this God. He goes even further. He decides to tithe his wealth. 10% of, of all that he gains. He says, I'm going to give it back to you. And that's important. The, the, the tithing thing, the idea that he's going to give stuff to God, that's proof of his conversion. That's the transformation that we look for in people. Because if you remember him earlier in his life, what does his name Jacob mean? It means to grasp after. It means to take something, to go behind somebody's back, to usurp, which is exactly what he had that's been, that, was his, that was his mode his entire life. And you see just the opposite. The guy that was known and grew up and named for being a taker is now becoming a giver. And you see a stunning encounter that produces radical, noticeable transformation in his decisions. So again, God meets people as they are, but never leaves them as they are. If you meet the living God He will receive you as you are. You don't have to clean up your act. But he he will love you too much to leave you as you are. If you're interacting with the God of the Bible, 
change should take place in your life and it should be noticeable. This ancient account, doesn't matter how old it is, this ancient account rings with authenticity. Actually, today, right now in the world, many, many Muslims and people coming out of Islamic societies report of having dreams, and in their dreams, they see, they see Jesus. They see Jesus Christ. And shortly after that, they convert to Christianity. One of our missionaries uh, will tell you that's exactly what happened to him before he became a Christian. God meets people. God met Jacob. Now listen to this. God met Jacob not in the safety of his own home, not under the guidance and tutelage of his parents. He meets God away from all of that, after all of that. Now, how do we as parents respond to that? Or how do you as a spiritual mentor of other people respond to the fact that God did all of this outside and after the training? Well, I think we have to begin by acknowledging that God extends his grace to people in his timing. His timing. And more importantly, in his own way. You have your plans, and God has his. You have your schedule, and God has his. And I think Jacob's story beautifully illustrates that. Jacob had learned about the promises of God. His dad is Isaac. His grandfather is Abraham. Abraham. Abraham died after Jacob and Esau were born, like 15 years after the boys were born. So, so it is very reasonable to assume that Jacob had learned about the promise that God had made to this family and how critical it was to the hope and future of humanity. Jacob heard about it. He learned about it, but it was God who awoke him to the personal significance of the promise for him as a man. And that happened in God's way. And in God's timing. But it was after Jacob had left home. I can, I can relate to this. I can remember some moments in my life where, where God met me. Even though I necessarily wasn't asking for it. God met me and dramatic responses, tangible responses, changed in my life as a result of that. And, and I can think of just one. Uh, actually, I'll tell you just one. I was at a prayer meeting at an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship summer retreat for student leaders. And I was at a prayer meeting. It was after my junior year of college. And I remember in this prayer meeting, waves, waves of guilt just pouring out of me. Now, I know I'm speaking figurative, figuratively, but in the moment it felt literal. It felt in the moment as, as though, and here's partly why. Because I, I, was, I was in tears. Uh, tears were pouring out of my eyes. And sorry, it's just true. Mucus was flowing out of my nose. You know when you're absolutely, you've lost it. And it's just like nonstop. And people are trying to hand you tissues. And it doesn't matter. It's, it just, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Um, and it felt as though waves of self-inflicted guilt for my own sin were just pouring out of me. I knew in that moment that God was purging me of a life of guilt and a life of sin right there. 
and, and, and it wasn't the last time that God worked in a profound way, and it wasn't the first time, but it was maybe, maybe the most memorable time in my own life. Now, my parents are Christians, and mom and dad raised me and my brother uh, to understand and know the gospel and the God of the Bible and biblical truth, and they instilled uh, Christian principles in me. But faith had to become my own. And God did that outside of my house. God did that apart from the discipleship and mentoring uh, of the people in my life, in my early life. And, and I see that as we look at Jacob here. Again, God worked in his timing and in his own way, despite what had happened in the past, good and bad. As Paul said of himself, Paul, Paul called himself, as we read earlier, Paul called himself the chief of sinners. This is a guy who wrote part of the Bible, said, I'm the biggest sinner I know because I know what's in my heart and I know what I've done in my life. And Paul said, God, in order to show his grace and patience to everybody else, God saved me, the biggest sinner of all. And Paul would, would say something else in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by the, despite my record and where I've been and what I've done and the harm that I've caused, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and I have to agree with that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to diminish the, the legitimate role that we play in the lives of our kids or, or the role that we play in mentoring and discipling other people. That's legitimate. God works through you. God works through your parenting. God works through your mentoring and your teaching. Theologians call that secondary causes. God is doing the work, but he's working through you, a secondary agent of his power and of his grace. So I don't want to illegitimize good parenting and, and good discipling. But you cannot say that it is simply by my parents' efforts and simply by the prayers of my friends and my teachers that I am what I am. We have to say, based on what we see in Jacob's life, exactly what Paul said about Jacob and about you and I. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the way of God and by the timing of God, I am what I am. Joyce Baldwin but it this way, the God who bothered with Jacob is also willing to bother with us and make us something we could never otherwise have been. And I'll, I'll take that a little further and just say, the God who bothered with Jacob is willing to bother with your kids and the people you're discipling and make them something that we could never make them. Despite our prayers, despite our, our efforts, he will make them what he has chosen in his love and sovereign, uh, sovereignty to make them. God's plans for our kids incorporates our successes and our failures. God's plans for your kids incorporates even your mistakes as parents and as mentors. God's plan for your kids also takes into account, incorporates your amazing insights and your neglectful oversights. God brings it all in and uses it for his glory. I mean, think about it. Do you want your kids to grow up and worship you and praise you for the people you've made them? No. That would be a bad idea. 
God makes them, even through your efforts and even through your mistakes, what he wants them to be. Yeah? And even the people, the adults you're discipling, he wants them to be what he wants them to be so that someday they can worship God and say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what you want. You want them to worship God alone, not you. And so what we do is we mentor people and we pray for them and then we get out of God's way and let him work in his timing. So as parents or as spiritual mentors, we trust in the grace and the sovereignty of God. Now there are two casualties of fear-based parenting or mentoring. Two casualties to teaching and mentoring and parenting in fear. And what I mean by uh, fear-based is you're afraid that they will be unresponsive. You're afraid that they will not follow Jesus as you have. You're afraid that they will not take your advice. You're afraid that they will not be exemplary human beings. You're afraid that they will break your heart, although you've poured yourself into them. Two casualties of fear-based parenting or mentoring. One is spiritual oppression. This is the first, this is, the, this is one side of the cliff that you could fall off if you parent or mentor based in fear. Spiritual oppression. Uh, this is being overbearing in the way we parent. This is being, this is being controlling having a controlling approach. And, and this, in all of our planning and ways, it tends toward legalism, which is really, I think, spiritual abuse. And it's abusive because you're not teaching them to follow God. You're teaching them to follow you. That's why it's abusive. That's why it's a problem. You're called to teach them to follow God, but in, in reality, through your controlling behavior through your overbearing effort to make something spiritual out of your children or the people you're trying to mentor, you're making disciples of yourself. And that is parent-centered parenting. But the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians said, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. Somebody that's spiritually coaching me said, Brian when I told him how hard it is and how I was failing in many ways to be a parent, he said, put Ephesians 6, 4 right in your to-do list and never take it out. And it's still there. I can show you right on, right on my iPhone to-do list. It's still there to this day, four years later, Ephesians 6, 4. But Paul said, fathers, and the way the NIV English translation says is, fathers, don't exasperate your children. There's not only spiritual oppression, though. There's also, there's the danger of spiritual neglect. This is another thing we tend to do when we are afraid as we disciple and as we parent. Spiritual neglect is more of a hands-off approach to mentoring and to parenting. More of a detached approach. This is more, this is more of, you know, they've got to find their own way in life. I can't force anything on them. They're their own people. I need to let God meet them in their own way. So I'm just going to back off. I'm not going to provide advice. I'm not going to make any suggestions, give any counsel. I'm just going to let the chips fall where they may. I'm just going to let them go and see what happens. Uh, This tends toward relativism. This tends toward not so much spiritual abuse, but spiritual enabling. And this actually, so, so instead of teaching them how to be another you, 
uh, instead of teaching them how to follow you, you end up teaching them how to follow themselves, which is, is different, but it's not any better. Spiritually enabling people, you're just setting them up to learn how to follow themselves and lean on their own wisdom and their own understanding and not take the objective truth of God and Jesus Christ seriously. And that is kid-centered parenting. In our fear, we we are prone towards either parent-centered parenting or kid-centered parenting, okay? But when the Apostle Paul said, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, he went on to say, but, and here's where the balance comes, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that's what we need. When we disciple one another and when we parent our kids in the next generation, we need a balanced, God-centered approach. Not a parent-centered approach, not a kid-centered approach. We need a God-centered approach to raising up the next generation. Grace-centered parenting or grace-centered mentoring, that liberates you. Fear binds you. But grace-centered parenting liberates you to trust Jesus with your kids. To trust Jesus with the people you're praying for. And discipling and, 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 and trying to lead well. Jacob's stairway to heaven was radically... Let's go back to Jacob and the stairway he saw in his dream. Jacob's stairway to heaven was radically different from the first stairway to heaven you find in the book of Genesis. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 11, we are told uh, early in the dawn of humanity's history that, that uh, some people, that humanity tried to erect a tower, another stairway, right? But that stairway, the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, that stairway was the result of humanity in its pride striving to reach up and attain greatness, in pride striving to reach heaven. And the stairway that God gives Jacob in this vision is nothing like that. It's a complete inversion of that Tower of Babel. Because this stairway, this stairway is, um, it's, it's God in his grace reaching down to humanity. For Jacob and his family and for their descendants, God is saying it will not be that way for you. That is how the world does things. They strive unceasingly to attain the divine and to attain godlike status. It's not going to be that way for the family of the promise. It's not going to be that way for you, Jacob, and for your children and grandchildren. You need to know that I am reaching down to save you. And rather than living a life of striving endlessly in your pride, in humility, live a life of receiving the grace that I offer even when you're not looking for it. That's the significance of the vision. And then Jesus, 2,000 years later, Jacob's great offspring, Jacob's great descendant, Jesus told his disciples, truly, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so Jesus in that moment is saying, the stairway, guys, is me. I, I'm the stairway. 
I'm the means by which God reaches down and communicates to humanity. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. So Jesus is saying, it's me. I am ultimately the finality, the fulfillment of what Jacob saw in his dream. God reaches us through his son, Jesus. Mothers, your bodies have suffered for your children. Your bodies have, have been broken and torn and depleted out of love and nourishment to your children. And, and when that becomes less physical, you know it remains emotional and spiritual. But only Jesus Christ's broken body will feed your children with spiritual food that can save them and give them eternal life. Only he has that. And he was broken for your children in a way that you cannot comprehend. Fathers, we, what do we do? We, we labor and we sweat and sometimes even bleed to protect our kids, provide for them. But only Jesus Christ's poured blood will remove their guilt. Only the spilled sweat and blood and tears of the Lord Jesus Christ will wash away from our children the guilt that, that will bring upon them the good and just wrath of God for their rebellion. Jesus has wept and sweat and bled for your children in a way that you cannot imagine. Don't get in his way while you spiritually mentor and pray for your children. Let him work. And know that even through you and even with your mistakes, it is always him and he will accomplish his purposes. Faith trusts that Jesus will work in people even when we cannot. So let's not spiritually oppress one another. And let's also not spiritually neglect each other and our young people. But rather trust God to work by his grace and in his timing. Yeah? And in his way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the... We praise you for this historical account of this one man's life and how you met him in his duress and despite his failures and, and his treachery, you blessed him and showed him a new way of life. And Father, that's what we're asking for. We thank you for blessing us, although we didn't deserve it, with a new way of life. And we're asking you for our young people, Lord, for our kids and even for the people in this town and in our lives who, who we are praying for who we are laboring for. We ask that you would give us faith to trust you as we labor, to trust you and to wait upon you as you work. We do ask for a spiritual harvest in Westminster. 
and in Carroll County and even to the ends of the earth. But Father, we submit to your timing. We submit to your ways to accomplish it. And we praise you for your sovereign grace. Amen.